We're going to be in the book of Titus. So if you want to find Titus chapter one, that's we have been uh, talking starting last week about character. And if you have any question whether character counts, just ask Tiger Woods if you can find him. Uh, I'll tell you, character is something that we, we hope for in our our folks like our athletic stars, our sports stars, our Hollywood stars. When we see uh, displays of a lack of character, you know, as Christians, what it is is a call to prayer. You know what Tiger Woods needs most? He, he needs people praying for him because he needs the Lord. It is obvious and unfortunately in his case, his, his lack of character and his real need for Christ has been made evident throughout the whole world. But when you have high privilege, there's always a lot of high responsibility that goes with that. On the other hand, when you see sports stars like uh, Colt McCoy or Tim Tebow, and they they demonstrate a lot of character both on and off the field, why our esteem for them just kind of skyrockets. And we think highly of them. And the world takes notice that when they do say things about, hey, I want to give all the glory to God, like last night uh, in the reception of the Heisman Trophy. We we take notice of that because integrity is being put on display when it comes to our political leaders. We really hope that they are men and women of integrity. And when they when they demonstrate character, when they do the right thing, I mean, we just like we, we acknowledge that. And we're like, this is right. And then when we have uh, just fiascos like what happened with Watergate and Nixon or uh, what happened with Bill Clinton, we're just we're disappointed. And, and some people become very disillusioned with the public leaders that are supposedly leading us. But let me tell you about character, sports world, Hollywood, stars, political leaders. You know, we we have high hopes that these will be men and women of of integrity and character. But let me tell you, we're one place where leadership absolutely demands that these be people of character and integrity. And that is in the church. There just is no compromise I know there's people that say, well, you know, it's just that he's a good leader. It doesn't matter that his life is in shambles and his moral life is a disaster like some of these governors. In the church, character is critical. If, if character, if a Christ-like character is being manifested in the life of a leader, a church grows and thrives and matures. Do you know why? Because its leaders are. On the other hand, if you, do, you have leaders that do not have Christ-like character, lack integrity, why, what happens is the church moves into a point of confusion, complacency, even catastrophe. And what Paul has assigned Timothy, as we've been beginning this book of Titus, is he said, I've got a job for you. You are a key man. I've invested in you. I've poured my life into you. I've trained you, trained you. You've grown. You've matured. I'm giving you a heavy-duty assignment. I want you to go to the island of Crete. I want you to establish leaders, elders, in every one of the cities, just as I directed you. And so you see in chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and I want you to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Leadership is critical to the health of a church because as go the leaders, so go the people. And so he tells them that uh, these are the characteristics, the qualities that you want to help develop and identify in leaders. And he's supposed to be involved in this process. And it really, it all begins in the home. Leaders find that they are developed at home. Leadership in the church is matured through relationships at home. So he says, the first thing I want you to do is verse six, 
you find men who are above reproach. You help them become that way. There's no handle on their life. There are husbands of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So you focus on their family. You help them get their family life in order. Those that are, are maturing and growing and spiritually leading their families, the same skills needed to do lead a family are what's needed in the church because a church is really just a large family of relationships. And then he says there's character that is critical for the life of a leader. And so you want to help them develop and identify these individuals that have character. And he begins in verse 7 by saying these are the characteristics they must not be manifesting. They have to address these issues if they're in their life, and these people need to learn how to avoid them. Okay? And he lists through them. But on the, on the flip side of that, there are positive traits that you want to see developed and manifested in the lives of your leaders. And let me tell you that, you see, leadership is to exemplify what God is seeking to do in all of, all of us, every one of Christ's people. If you're reading this and going, Whew, well, I'm not an elder, so this doesn't apply to me. This applies to five other guys, but it doesn't apply to me. Actually, this is what the Holy Spirit is seeking to develop in each one of our lives. Leaders are just merely to show this in a mature form, to exemplify it. Praise God, we have godly elders at Fellowship Bible Church who model these characteristics. But this is what we're after. This is what the Spirit of God is seeking to cultivate in every single person's lives. Okay, and so we find these characteristics, these traits that the Spirit of God is seeking to develop. It's kind of like working with leather. Now, there's probably very few people in our church that are actually skilled in this ancient art. But maybe you tried it at a little Cub Scout function or at a church camp. But working with leather, what you do is you have this piece of leather, and then you trace a pattern on it, okay? This pattern that you'd like to see kind of in this leather, and then that leather is dampened. And then you go to work actually making the imprint. you got stamps, you have various implements, you have a stylus, and you make lines. And what happens is you use a hammer. Hopefully it's a rawhide hammer. Maybe it's a plastic hammer. That'll, that'll work. But you start etching, and you're making these lines, and you're putting these stamps. Now, you never want to use a metal hammer because it's, it's, it offers too much force. It hits it too hard. You're going to damage the leather. You're not going to be putting the imprint that you want on it. And, you know, our lives are like pieces of leather. God is seeking to put his imprint upon our life. And we are to come and be shaped and fashioned to look like Jesus Christ. The very same one who has saved us, who has invested his spirit in us, he is in the same time God is seeking that our character would be manifest and look like the character of Jesus Christ. That's what he's going about. It's interesting, the, the Greek word for character, it, it means to make a notch or an indention or some sort of scratching or writing. It could be referred to like stone or wood. And, and really, historically, it, it, it means to have a mark, a distinctive mark that is impressed or formed by an out, outside force onto the interior of a person. And that's what God is doing. He is seeking to make his impressions upon our life. And let me tell you what God uses, the stylus, the hammer, the stamps. He uses his Holy Spirit. He uses his Son. He uses Scripture, God's Word. And he uses the saints, his people. 
And these are the tools in which God uses and forms and works into the fabric of our being. There's impressions that are made, sharp edges that are removed, things that have to be cut out that go deep, perhaps things that are listed like in verse 7. And at the same time, God is developing and maturing the qualities of Christ likeness in all of his people. And so what is that? What are, what are the characteristics that Christ is seeking to manifest and develop in each one of our lives and especially in the lives of aspiring, emerging and growing and developing leaders? Well, we find them listed in verse eight. He says, this is what the kind of leader you want to become and you're we're looking for in churches. First trait, he says, the quality an elder must have is that he is hospitable. Okay, now hospitable is an interesting word. We generally think that oh, being hospitable, it's like uh, we clean up our house, do a little dusting, make some food, invite some people over, and then we try to be nice to them. That is hospitality, right? And down here in the South, we have Southern hospitality, which far exceeds any other type of hospitality, right? But hosp- all right, there we go. All right, okay. But hospitality, do you know what it really means? It means to show love to a stranger. It's showing kindness, generosity, graciousness to a stranger, to people. So, so hospi- a hospitable person is one who has a lifestyle of being generous and caring, kind, accepting, warm, loving. Now, for instance, uh, our word hospital you know why it's called a hospital? It's, it's a medical center where people receive care, surgical, medical care for their physical needs, sometimes emotional, psychological needs. It's a hospital. It's a place where people receive care, love. And by the way, if you are in the medical profession, you're a doctor or a nurse, do you know that the people that are in the hospital are looking for you to be hospitable you know they are obviously very appreciative and concerned and care about the things that you're doing to them or working with them the medical treatments that you're prescribing but do you know what is so very important to their heart their attitude their whole approach and what they think of you it's it's your character are you hospitable i make a lot of hospital calls i was in the hospital yesterday and you know what you know what people talk about when they talk about their doctors They talk about how warm and caring they are or the lack thereof. A good nurse, boy, she's so kind and loving, versus the alternative. If a doctor or a nurse has prayed with a patient, they almost always tell me that. It creates such an impression upon them. Do you know what? It's being hospitable. And it's not just for doctors or for nurses. It's for all of us. I was uh, speaking with one of our doctors this past week, and he was relaying a conversation he was having with another doctor about some patient that had all these self-destructive tendencies and behaviors. And this one doctor was kind of bemoaning that, like, ugh. And this doctor said something that was so very wise. He said this, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, if it wasn't God's grace in our life, we'd all be doing self-destructive behavior and tearing ourselves apart and ripping up relationships. But for the grace of God, go I. You see, what Christ is seeking to develop in us is the ability to be hospitable, caring, loving. In fact, Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. You see, 
You don't know who you're ministering to or how God is going to use that when you are hospitable. And when you offer your time and your kindness to someone, why, it makes such a different it, difference. It portrays the life of Christ being manifested in your life. Just, I mean, just think about yesterday. We had a group of folks go out and do King's Club out of the Kate Ross apartments. You know what they're doing is they're spending just a couple hours ministering these kids, talking with them, having fun with them, and their parents and the grandparents that sometimes come to these things. Why, they're just showing the love of Christ. They're being hospitable. Or the, or the event that was held last afternoon, on Saturday afternoon with the Angel Tree Christmas Party where, where parents, you know, some of their kids, their parents are in prison. Maybe mom or the dad comes with some of the kids or the grandparents. Well, at Faith Rest Ranch, we had our Encore, some of our folks in our Mountain Mirror Mystery. What they came, you know what they did? They offered hospitality. They showed the love of Christ to a stranger. When you send a box, a little shoe box, Operation Christmas Child, I don't know, you send like 388 of them this year just from our church. You know what that is? That's showing love to a stranger. Or those angel tree presents that you see out there, they're going to do all those prisoner kids. Prisoner's kids. You know what that is? That's showing love to a stranger. Now you're going, well, Grant, how, how, do, you, how do you become hospitable? I, I can give it to you one word. If it's the word love. Do you know that when you love someone, that you are willing to show that, to show, extend care to it? And do you know what? We can do it. We can be hospitable. We can love. Do you know why? Because, because God loves us. In fact, that's what he says in 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. And as you think of the love of God manifested to this world, especially in your life, demonstrated on in Christ as he died on the cross, when you continue to focus on Christ and his love, it gives us the ability to extend that love to the people in our lives. Now, don't wait for the desire to come upon you like, well, that's really good. I think I'll just wait till I feel hospitable and then I'm going to do something. It doesn't work that way because for some of us, we'll be waiting a long time. I wanted to be hospitable and never desire never came upon me. And so I never did it. No. You know what? Hospitality is you looking for the need and just trying to meet it. It can be a physical need, but it could be emotional or, or spiritual. But it's you looking and being sensitive to all the needs around you. And let me assure you, they are everywhere. Do you know there's lots of just lonely Christians? And this is the sad thing. They might be kind of bashful or shy. And so they're like, oh, I really wish I had friends. But they I'm like, but I'm too shy. So they're waiting for people to kind of enter, enter their life. Okay? And at the same time, if that doesn't happen for a while, like, hmm, boy, this is just not a very nice group of people here. They never reach out to me. Well, guess what? You have to reach out first. That's what hospitality is. It's showing love to a stranger. If you don't know the person, you have the potential to show love to them. So don't just wait for it to happen. Take advantage. In fact, it's the Spirit of God that is prompting that. Let me just give you some simple ways for you to show hospitality. You could smile. Okay? That works wonders. Changes your attitude, changes the attitude of a whole room. You could be pleasant and just pleasantly greet someone. You could write someone a note of appreciation. You could invite someone over. Last week, we were meeting with some of our grad students. They were just saying, you know, boy, it would just be good. so great if just someone would just, inv- just ask to meet us. Or we have one grad student. She's very young, very smart, very young. She's a long ways away from home. And all she'd like to do is just once a month just be a part of a family. And I'm looking around here, and we're packed full of families. If you want to be involved in something like that, 
Just call the church office. We'll put you in contact with this person or these people. But that's what hospitality is. It's showing love, perhaps even to a stranger. And by the way, if you would like to share the gospel with someone, this upcoming generation, they need to know that you love them as a person before they're ever going to listen to you about what you have to say about Jesus Christ. And that's what Christ is doing in all of our lives. He is seeking for us to be hospitable. And I'll tell you what, I, as a pastor, I am so overwhelmed with joy when I just hear of all these various incidents of hospitality. I think most of which I don't, but every once in a while I just hear things. Like this fall we had a ladies' Bible study, and one of the ladies shared the, a prayer request for her sister, who and her, her sister had gone through some very difficult times. Her and her husband had to move. They had to basically leave what little possessions they had. They were having a hard time finding a job, found a job about three hours away. One of their children was very sick. Their car was broken down. They literally show up three hours away from here with nothing. All this gal did is said, you know, would you pray for my sister? She's just in need of prayer. Well, these ladies go, well, what's, what's the problem? Well, they started asking some probing questions and found out they don't have anything. They don't have clothes. They don't have pots and pans. They don't have stuff for their bathroom, like towels or something like that. So, you know what these ladies did? These are ladies in our church. Well, they took a little collection. They came up with $400. Then they started buying and gathering stuff. Like, I've got silverware. They've collected all these pots and pans, clothes. They put all this stuff together in a, just a massive gift. And it was driven down and delivered to Houston. You know what that is? That is hospitality. That is Christ's love and action. And it is overwhelming to the people that receive it. And it's what the Lord is seeking to develop in each one of our lives, especially you who are in leadership. We were to be hospitable. Let me show you another quality. He says, not only are they to be hospital, but notice what he else he says. Verse eight, loving what is good. This has the idea that they are, you're being drawn to those things that are good in life. All the many things that are so good in life. You're loving both good things and good people. You like good books. You have good friends. You, you like all, all, everything about God and all the many good things that he blesses us with and provides in this life. You are a lover of what is good. You don't despise good things, but you love them. And so how do you, how do you actually develop this characteristic of, of loving what is good? Well, first of all, it starts with a desire. And this desire really comes from Christ himself. To actually love the things that are good in life. And so you have this desire and desire is so critical to life because what you desire in your heart is basically what you're going to do because desire directs behavior. Okay, got the wrong desires, desires for the wrong things. It will drive your behavior. On the other hand, you have the desire for the right things, the good things. It will drive your behavior. So you desire, but then you have to be able to discern. You have to discern those things that are harmful and helpful, those things that are good and noble and honorable, and those things which are wrong, bad, evil, immoral. You've got to be able to discern. God will help you develop this, this ability to discern. But you, you start picking, seeing like, no, that wouldn't be good, but this would be excellent. But here's the tough one. A lot of us can figure out what's good and what's bad. The question is, which one are you going to focus on? That takes discipline. You have to make the decision to actually pursue that which is right or what is good, okay? And, and, it's, and it's a choice. And let me just tell you a little bit about the whole idea of discipline. Our flesh, the residual aspect of our being that, is, that, that clings and desires those things are wrong, even as we become Christians and we place our faith in Christ, 
we still have this desire, this like gravitational pull to that which is wrong and evil and immoral. Okay? I wish, I, I wish it would just go away. Like, it's just gone. You've placed your faith in Christ and it's gone. But it's still there. And it, it wants to be fed. And it wants you to, to jump in and to enter into scenarios, whether it's vicariously or even actually physically involved in all these different things that are wrong and evil and immoral. You have to, you have to say no to those things. And the Spirit of God will empower you. And so you have to exercise discipline and then you develop patterns of continually pursuing those things that are good. And when you do this, what you're finding is that you become a person who loves what is good. Like Philippians chapter four, verse eight, he says this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. All those things, those are the things that we're to dwell on, we're to focus on. And so, and when we do this, do you know that when you're loving what is good, you're enjoying life? And when you're not, life lacks joy and zeal because you, there's a conflict taking place. Because as people of Christ, we're starting, if we're, we're focusing on the things that are wrong and evil, not loving what is good, there's like a conflict and a war that starts taking place in our soul. And it leaves us cool toward others and perhaps even cold toward God. There's a great uh, bit of instruction in the book of Ecclesiastes on this whole subject of loving good. The writer of Ecclesiastes says in 3.12, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God to see good in all the things that you are doing. And so when it comes to leadership, our leaders, the leaders in our church, they've got to be loving what is good because that's godliness. Notice another characteristic that he, he says. They're to be hospitable, loving what is good. This next one, sensible. This has the idea of demonstrating sound judgment and wisdom, exercising discernment and, and control of one's mind and what he thinks about. Perhaps even has the idea of being thoughtful. OK, they are sensible and they have the ability to be to make good decisions. They have the opportunity of uh, the ability to uh, be objective with their perspective. And, and so when you see sim- sensible, it's the idea that someone has the ability to exercise good judgment. OK, now. Here's something that may be surprising to you. But when Paul talks about Christian maturity, those who are maturing in Christ, do you know what the one quality is that he mentions more than any other? I found this to be surprising as I've been studying. But those of you who've been reading the book of Titus, you may actually know. It's the word sensible. You may find in your Bible translation prudent. But notice what he says. Your leaders, they are to be people who are Sensible. They've got sound judgment. They have wisdom in action. They are able to have the self-discipline of mind. But notice this. In chapter 2, in chapter 2, I want you to see how many times he talks about this is what God is seeking to develop in every one of his people. Older men, look at 2-2. They are to be what? Temperate, dignified, sensible. What are the older women? Older women are to be cultivating this trait. And do you know what they're to be doing? They're to be passing it on to others. They're to be encouraging the young women. That's verse four. Look at verse five to be sensible in control 
exercising discernment, having the ability to control what they think and what they do. How about these young men? Verse six, likewise, urge the young men. You young guys, you know what God is seeking to develop in your life? That you are, what does it say? Verse six, sensible. If you need reinforcement on the whole idea, look at chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live what? Sensibly. This is what the spirit of God is seeking to develop in our lives, that not only we have common sense, but that we exercise discernment, that we've got wisdom, that we are sober in light of Christ's return, that we can exercise the ability of discerning what's right and what is wrong. And we choose to do what is right. It means that you've got the ability to control of what's going on in your mind. You don't just let your mind continue to wander in all these wrong directions. Now, we all face temptation. The question is what you're going to do with it. The guy and the gal who's sensible is exercising discernment and saying, no, you know what? I'm not going down there. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to think about what is noble or honorable or what is right. If you're going to fulfill your ministry, you have to be sensible. And by the way, do you know what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But you know what we need to be? You know what he says before that? He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. Do you know how we're going to resist the schemes of Satan? It is by having this trait that God is seeking to develop in each of us, and that is being sensible. If you would like uh, just one book to help you develop, to be a sensible, self-ability to have discernment and wisdom in life, I would want to recommend the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters. They're very short. They can be read probably in about two to three minutes per chapter. And there's 31. It corresponds for pretty much with each day of the month. You know, some of the, one of the best patterns that you might ever establish is like, you know, on that day, I'm just going to try to read that proverb, that chapter. You're going to, I, I can tell you so many times where God has either corrected, brought to mind situations that I didn't handle well, or maybe I said too much, like this happened this week, or I, it was just a passing comment when I was reading Proverbs chapter 10. Like, oh, shouldn't have said that. God bring, brought that to my attention. There's so many times that I felt like I'm so glad that I read that chapter of Proverbs Day. Because if I hadn't, I probably would have done the wrong thing. God wants to develop us as sensible people. It's a quality and a characteristic that is found in maturity. And notice this, turning back to Titus chapter 1, verse 8. He says, not only being hospitable and loving what is good and sensible, but just. This has the idea that you reflect God's just character in dealing with others, that you're righteous, that you don't have a double standard, that you treat people fairly. You're not inequitable. You don't have two sets of standards, one for you and another one for everybody else. And this is something that's extremely important. By the way, you're... Your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, let me assure you, your clients, your customers, they want you to be just. Many of your clients, your customers, they don't know Christ. And what they do know of Christ perhaps may be on how you treat them. Are you fair? Are you just? Uh, It says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. 
And what he was talking about there uh, in ancient times, times when Proverbs is written, there wasn't a lot of coins out there. And so what they did is they used weights. They had stones and they had scales. And so you traded, you know, maybe traded these grapes for this grain. Okay. And so they had these stones and they weigh it out. But the problem was, is that some of these vendors, they had two sets of stones. When they were selling, they had a lighter weight of stones. They put that on there and like, hmm, that's all your stuff there. But when they're buying, they got to pull out, have another set of stones, but were heavier. And then they would. And so they felt like they could get more. Well, you know what? Your business transactions. It's a spiritual matter. And if you're not giving someone what you say that you're saying you're giving him, that is a serious issue with God. Our how we conduct our business and go about our day with our clients and our customers. It's a spiritual matter. And so. If you want a simple plan on how to be just and how to cultivate just being a just, fair person in your life, Jesus kind of nailed it in one short sentence, just like Jesus. Luke 6, verse 31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That'll help you a long ways in being just. There's another characteristic, he says. Also, our leaders... What Christ is seeking to develop in us, what you, Titus, must help form among these individuals, they are devout. This is pleasing and loyal to God. There's, there's not compromise in their life. They, are, they have an absolute commit, commit to Christ, his word, his direction in their life. And this is one of the terrible tragedies of Israel, is that their leaders failed to be devout. They ended up being compromising and they ended up being complacent and pretty soon they could care less about God. And, and the Bible writes it just the way it is. When you do not have leaders who are devout, absolutely committed, wholeheartedly to Christ or to God, you're going to have complacency and chaos in the people that you're leading. It happened in Israel and it happens in churches today. Our leaders, the leaders in the church, have to be devout because if they're not, they won't be concerned about you maturing in Christ and walking by the spirit and doing what is right and loving God and growing in his word and doing the right things with your family and your children and how you conduct yourself out in the world and the gospel going forth, not only in our community, but throughout the world. But if you have men who are elders who are devout, you know what? They're concerned with the things that God is concerned about because they're absolutely committed to him. Now, let me just tell you something a little bit about your relationship with Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior, you recognize you're a sinner, you turn from your sin, you trust in Christ. There's some things that automatically take place that Christ actually you're united with Christ. There's some what we call positional truths that are established in you. You are considered absolutely righteous. You are completely forgiven. OK, you uh, God never holds the, any sin against you because he always sees us. In his son, never in our sin, you are legally, completely and eternally Christ. These are positional truths. And in one respect, how Christ sees you, he sees you as absolutely holy. You are set apart to him. In fact, his Holy Spirit is seals us. His, he marks us out as one of his own. But at the same time, there is what we could call progressive holiness. This is as we live out our life. Christ is seeking to develop holiness and maturity in us. So positionally, we are absolutely in Christ. We are seen as complete, 
whole, uh, holy, set apart to him, eternally his. At the same time, Christ is seeking to develop practical holiness in our life. This is called progressive sanctification or progressive holiness. People who are devout have gone a long ways on demonstrating and, and displaying a commitment to Christ and a growth in their relationship with him. But let me just describe to you the slippery slope for errant elders and for churches that become lifeless. Let me just tell you what this looks like. Generally, uh, your elders, the elders start off and they're devout. Because of their devoutness and their commitment, they're, they're recognized as such and, and they become the leaders in the church. And so, but you know, like leaders are people too. Do you know that? Leaders are people too. They have to do the exact same things we all have to do. You have to enjoy God. You have to love him. You have to spend time in his word. Pray. You have to cultivate and continue to walk and develop this relationship that you have with Christ. And what happens with leaders that become errants is they start off good and devout. But then what happens is distractions come along. And, and these distractions generally are really good things. Okay? Might be hobbies, special interests, uh, maybe just being too busy, even too busy with the right things. Um, but what happens is that they become distracted. And there's all these different things kind of pulling at them. And, and, you know, if you lose your first love, something else is going to move in. And what happens with elders that started off devout and then they start becoming distracted by some of these different things? Well, then the next thing that happens is they become disoriented. They're, they actually are not really sure what are the priorities of a Christ-like life. And they're, they're confused. And, and they, in this scenario here, they can, they, they're able to kind of do the right thing and say the right thing. But then there's such a pull in some of these other areas that they've developed and cultivated some pretty intense interests in. And what happens is compromises start to crop up. Little decisions become bigger decisions. And then, then out, out comes the mask. The mask. Um, they learn to start feigning certain behavior. They can be all nice and spiritual and quote-unquote Christian in the context that call for it. But in other scenarios, it's like, take off the mask and then I can just kind of be myself. And so they are on their, on their business trips or they were in other circles that they've developed relationships. They, they take, take off the hypocritical mask of the, the Christian mask and they start, they start kind of just being who they are, so to speak. They become disoriented when this happens. And then that leads to then disenfranchisement they they're disenfranchised they rationalization takes place they the truths of scripture they know them they know the bible verses but you know what they're just like trite statements to justify sinful behavior and once that's taken place and the seeds of hypocrisy have been sown and they're starting to come up the next thing you have is desertion disaster defection and this happens it is the slippery slope. It is the gravitational pull. And, and believe me, it's the scheme of the devil to take anybody that's being effective and to render you absolutely ineffective in whatever ministry you might have with your family or in your church. You want an example? You want a real life example? You want to see what this looks like? You're in the book of Titus. Just look like one page over at the end of Second Timothy chapter four. Here you got a guy. Look at chapter four, verse ten. For Demas, you know, Demas was one of Paul's key guys. You find him in Philemon 24. He's listed with some really heavy duty hitters like Mark, 
Aristarchus and Luke. He is called a fellow laborer, a fellow workman. And then he's also referenced at the end of Colossians in chapter 4, verse 14. But I want you to see Demas. Look what happened to him. Demas, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And he's gone on to Thessalonica. You know what happened? The things of Christ grew strangely dim. And something or someone else moved in. The world's values took over. And he went down that slippery slope. He was not devout. And he ends up in failure. It doesn't mean that Demas was not a Christian or lost his salvation. What it does mean, though, is it can happen to the best of us. If you've spent time studying the scripture, and a lot of you have, you will recognize that um, most of the people that failed in scripture fail in the second half of life. This characteristic that Christ is seeking to develop in all of us, the devout, is so critical. It is long-term faithfulness in the direction of Christ. There's another characteristic that he mentions. You see it at the final one in verse 8. They are self-controlled. Leaders, elders, what Christ is seeking to develop in all of us, we are self-controlled. That means that you're in full control of oneself. You're able to resist temptation to think or behave inappropriately when it comes by. You're able to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And at the same time, you're able to engage in doing those things that are right or healthy. Do you know that self-control when they is the final manifestation of that list of, of the fruit of the spirit, you know, the fruit of the spirit. We, we got the first ones down, right? Love, joy, and then peace and patience. Oh, why did you bring patience up? But, and then kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And do you know what the final aspect of the fruit of the spirit is? Self-control. I, I have of the persuasion that he Christ, the spirit is trying to develop all of those characteristics in our lives. Not just I'm going to focus on one or two or three, all of them. And one of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the manifestations of the Spirit's work in your life is that you are demonstrating self-control. And your leaders absolutely have to have this. They can't just be flying off the handle. They're not people of panic. They've got to be involved themselves in difficult situations, and they're going to need self-control. Solomon, he warns about being undisciplined and having no self-control in your life. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, he says this, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. You see, in in Solomon's time, a city was only as safe as its walls. Its walls was its protection. If you had a city with no walls, that means that anybody, any army, any country, any invading force that wanted to take you over, you'd be easy pickings. They'd just like, we're going to walk in. Kill some people, take it over. But if you had walls, you could keep people out for years. You see, the walls were the protection of the city. Self-control is your ability to protect your well-being and the condition of your soul. It's to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong and to say no to the things that are evil and trying to invade in. If you do not have self-control, you are easily exposed to the enemy and open for attack. Self-control is essential in leaders. They have to have the ability to be able to exercise the, the ability to say no to the wrong things, yes to the right things. Self-control and discipline go hand in hand. It's kind of like an athlete. Every good athlete 
has the ability to exercise self-control. And if you do not have self-control, it's going to break your ministry. No self-control, no leadership. You know what self-control does? It keeps us from the flagrant sins. You know, things like the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5 where he talks about like immorality and anger and strife and jealousy and disputes and all those things. You know, it is self-control that keeps us from these flagrant sins that immobilize us spiritually. But it's also self-control that keeps us from bad habits like laziness or just surfing the Internet endlessly or watching way too much TV and all the wrong stuff. Anything that keeps you from the cutting edge spiritually, self-control, that spirit-empowered self-control helps you make the right decisions, keeps you out of the wrong stuff. And the final characteristic and what we'll we'll pick up next time we're in the book of Titus is listed in verse 9, that you're holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. With God's people, through God's spirit, do you know what he's tried to develop? The ability for us to truly hold on to God's word. Yesterday, I got to see one of the oldest members of our church, Larry Goring, age 92. He's not able to come as often as he'd like, uh, just for some age-related issues that he has. But I said, so what have you been doing? Get this. You ready? He says, well, you know, I've, uh, I've been memorizing Isaiah 53 and, and some of 54. 92. I had to tell him before I, I left, I said, you know what? I hope I'm half the man you are if I ever get to your age. Because you know what? This is a man who's holding fast his word. And your leaders have to be able to do this. Because not only they have to love God's word, they've got to be able to live it out so that they will encourage the people in the church to grow and mature. They have the skills to do that. And at the same time, any forces or any doctrine that is out there that is contrary to truth, they not only be able to discern it, but they're able to protect their people by showing that well, uh, this is wrong. And so these are the qualities of leadership, the characteristics of Christ-like leadership. He's laid it out. He's talking about the character that is needed, and character is critical because the strength of a leader is determined by the development of his character. Now, you know, as we've been going through these traits, looking at the negative ones and the positive ones, um, I'd imagine like you, uh, if you're like me, I'm, you're like, whoa, there's times where you see some where you're falling short. Um, there's room for more growth. Let me tell you what you do. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, all of our shortcomings, all of our sin do you know what is paid for at the cross of Christ? He loves you with a steadfast love. He's paid for it all. He is the righteous one. He's lived a righteous life, and his righteousness has been placed on our account. And he loves you so much that he is seeking to develop these traits in your life. I mean, when we go through these traits, doesn't your soul long for and love them? Because this is what God is seeking to develop in all of us, not just our leaders all of us. And this is the vision that we as a church would continue to grow and mature and manifest these qualities. For these are the qualities of Christ, the leather of our life. This is what Christ is seeking to place an imprint on. That we would look like him and the world would see Christ through us. Let's pray. 
Lord, I want to thank you for the clarity of your word, how it shows us so specifically and clearly what you are seeking to do and accomplish through your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, for the clarity. And I would ask, Lord, that these upcoming weeks would be days of growth for us, that we'd not only be aware of these things, but that we would desire them. We would pray about them, that, Lord, all of these traits that we've talked about, being hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, being just, devout, self-controlled. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. But abiding in your son, all things are possible. And these traits can be an ongoing reality. And so we'd ask, Lord, that you would do this for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.